Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intercasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. We'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, where out of print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell them your old gaming products you aren't using anymore. Today, we're going to be talking about all kinds of D&D 5th edition news. First, we're going to be discussing an update being made to the Monsters Manual as we speak. We're going to talk about some previews that came out on Twitter for a new race and a new background. And then we're going to be talking about an article from the Examiner about how third-party distributors can be putting out... D&D materials without a license for the new edition. But first, let's meet our panel. With me today at the roundtable are Alex Basso. Hello. Rudy Basso. Greetings. And Joe Listowski. Howdy. All right, guys. And today's get-to-know-you question. What is your favorite house rule at the table? It can be from any edition of D&D. And let's start with you, Joe. All right. So when I first started playing D&D way back in the early 90s, um, our game was set in between first and second edition, and the DM that I had uh, was upset with the whole non-weapon proficiencies and the, the lack of skills that uh, well, just weren't there in that, in that particular edition. So whenever we came up to a, a challenge where our characters had to do some intricate, cool thing, he would set up an actual physical challenge that we had to do. So if there was like you had to shoot an arrow through this keyhole, he would set up like a tennis racket with no you know strands across it, and you'd have to throw a ball through it from across the room. And that was kind of his way of getting around the lack of um, useful skill mechanics in uh, that edition. And I really had a lot of fun with that. That, that sounds so cool. awesome. Yeah. yeah. That is a cool DM, and I would like very much to steal that. Rudy Basso, what is your favorite house rule? The skill challenge mechanic in 4th edition has had a long evolution. And it was when it was first introduced, it wasn't particularly fun or interesting. It was like, talk to this skeleton so he doesn't attack you. And it'd be a lot of uh, diplomacy check or intimidate check. It'd always be awkward. So for a while, um, we just did away with skill challenges until they came into a better, more useful form. And that was okay with me, and I think a lot of other people. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think a lot of tables house-ruled the way skill challenges were done or did away with them altogether in favor of something else, some good role-playing and maybe just a couple of skill checks or something. Alex Basso, what is your favorite house rule, any edition uh, of D&D? My favorite house rule is something we currently use right now in the new edition, and that's uh, keeping bloodied as a, uh, you know, it's something that, that happens in combat. Uh, bloodied, of course, from fourth edition, it occurs to enemies when, or anyone when they, when they hit half hit points. And I just, you know, it's, it's a great way to just kind of tell, kind of focus the group in combat. And I think it's like, makes sense as an effect. Like somebody's wounded, they physically, you can tell. Uh, in, in a combat so i think it's useful it's not too game changing either it's amusing that a lot of people complain that fourth edition was too much like a video game and i always felt like the bloodied mechanic actually 
kept it from being of it because you couldn't see the hit points of the thing. You couldn't see, you know, the 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 bar above, but there was that one indicator that was like, okay, this guy is is in need of healing or this monster is in need of killing. And I, I like that uh it stopped a lot of my players from saying, well, how many hit points do you have left? What, how, you know, it was yeah, a definitely. much simpler mechanic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just remember, like, people, you, the healer, all they have to do is look for the bloodied party members, and that's what they need to heal. They don't need to ask everyone. So, yeah, it definitely simplifies it. I'll thank the genius DM at your table for that, Alex. <laughs> mm. That, you, that house ruling you did is so iconic. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's one that I think you'll probably see at a lot of tables similar to the, the skill challenge one. Uh, by no means do I think that it's a genius idea or original idea on my part. Let's talk about our first topic, guys. A Legends and Lore article from the 14th of July in this year, 2014. A Menagerie of Monsters by Michael Merles. It says that we had too many monsters to put in the monsters manual, and we were trying to think about the best way to handle this, and he talks about, should we cut some monsters? Should we look at cutting some of the art to make our page count? How are we going to do this? And then they said, you know what, guys? Let's just add 32 pages at no extra cost to the consumer. I think that's awesome. I think it shows a great belief in their own product. And it was already a pretty hefty book to begin with. You know, it was going to be over uh, over 300 pages, I believe, of monsters and rules and all kinds of good stuff. And now they're giving you another 32 pages. Yeah, the page count is at 320 pages. That's awesome. It's amazing that they're doing this. I think probably, generally, you're all going to be pretty positive about this. But I want to go around the table real fast and see how everybody's feeling. Rudy Basso, let's start with you. Cool. That's what everyone's going to say. The suspicious person in me, though, wonders if this isn't just a marketing ploy, that perhaps they knew all along that they had this extra stuff and they were going to release it. But they're like, oh, the people will love us more if we uh, say that we didn't have enough room and that we we added it for free so everyone can enjoy it. Yes. But uh, I don't know. That's just me being a jerk, I guess. Um, <laughs> there's no reason not to be happy. It, I'm curious as to whether it's just monsters or more like rules modules, because uh, that would kind of tell me what's important to them right now, that they had something on the cutting room floor, but they decided to add it because they wanted to. Like, what is the, on the lowest priority list for them? What was in between? And then they decided to add it. Uh, that's That's all I can really get from this. Modrons were one of the things that was going to, that was on the chopping block, but then they decided to leave in. So, you know, I think it's going to be your, probably the things that made the cut are your slightly stranger monsters, your monsters that people don't use as often, probably. But I think we're still going to be glad to see those. I mean, I know I love thinking about weird monsters and how they can be used. Uh, Joe, how do you feel about this development? Well, I feel kind of clickbaited. Uh, when I saw that there was a new article on the D&D site called The Menagerie of Monsters, my immediate thought was, gee, I'm going to get to see some monsters, possibly in a menagerie setting. And I didn't. Uh, I just got <laughs> words about more monsters that I may eventually see on more pages that I didn't know didn't exist yet. And so that that kind of disappointed me a little. Uh, but I tell you, I, I am happy about it. I am excited that there's more content. I always like having more content. But what I wish and what, what I hope is that 
having looked through the the starter set, which I've been running at my uh, local gaming store, I hope that instead of just adding more monsters, I hope they add a little bit more of a description of the monsters. Uh, because if I'm if I'm using the starter set as kind of a guideline, and and if the rest of the monster manual looks like the monsters in the starter set, there's very little description of what things look like or or what um, you know tactics things have. There's maybe one sentence that says, "Oh, goblins are black-hearted, gather in overwhelming numbers, and crave power, which they abuse." Well, you could say that about humans. It doesn't tell me what they look like. It doesn't tell me where they live. It doesn't tell me a whole bunch of things. That might be useful if I didn't know what a goblin was or I didn't know what a what a modron was, for example. And so I hope that some of those 32 pages are devoted to adding in at least another sentence or two describing uh, some of the, the, the visceral details of these monsters so that we can better describe them to new players. Well, and I think they talked about when they were looking at what to cut. Uh, you know, he says, do we cut down the story material for each creature? That would be a mistake, especially since feedback has made it clear that people want a book that's fun to read. So I do think you're going to uh, see a lot of art. Um, you know, they've been talking about the art quite a bit. And I do think you're going to get very generous descriptions of a lot of these monsters, you know. And it sounds like you're also going to see a lot of variety for some of the creatures. They didn't want to cut down the variety of dragons and orcs and things like that. So hopefully for your very varied humanoids like humans, you're going to get a lot of great options within the monster's manual. I have faith. I have faith, my friend, that we will get all of the things we want. So, but hopefully I'm not getting my hopes up too high. Alex hmm. Basso, more monsters. What can be monsters. wrong? More monsters. Yes. Hooray. More enemies. Uh, I mean, it's it's great. I, mean, I, I don't see how I could complain about it, but I, I guess I will. Uh, <laughs> if I could... One, not complaint, but I feel like it would have been really cool if they ran like some sort of uh, poll to for the fans to save one monster out of like a group of three. Like oh, I think yeah. they missed an opportunity there. So just uh, you know, just involve everyone. Maybe even add some art of them on a on a chopping block, literally, and, and you choose uh. to save. Uh, that could have been cool, but I mean, otherwise, this is great. You know, more pages, more monsters. What? How can I complain? Sure, and as as fun as that contest would be, it's better to have all of the monsters. I feel like than. Well, I mean, there's still there's still got to be stuff not making it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you'll see a lot of things in supplements and campaign yeah. settings, and who knows? Maybe they're already planning a monsters manual too. We will see for sure. But it sounds like it's going to be good. It's interesting that we did have some quibbles here, and I think they're all pretty valid. Let's move on, though, to Twitter. Two weeks ago, they tweeted out some previews of the Tiefling, which are pretty awesome. It looks like they've given us the first two pages, including a lot of the game stats and the description that we're going to see that goes along with the Tiefling. We've got some good stuff going on in there. We also got some art, which is really cool to look at. I think this is actually some, some good-looking art from my perspective. You know, Tiefling, we got some purple skin, which is interesting. And then uh, they also tweeted out this uh, hermit background which we'll get to in a little bit. For now, let's start with the Tiefling. Guys, what did you think about the Tiefling? What did you like? What did you dislike? Let's start with you, Alex Basso. Tiefling, yeah. I mean, I'm not the biggest <laughs> fan of Tieflings, to be honest. Um, it's never really been my favorite race. The stuff, in, I mean, it's kind of, I guess, just typical of a Tiefling. 
of what we were used to now, like in fourth edition, you know, the really very demonic, you know, they have the long tail, they got the horns. And I, I kind of was hoping for, I, I remember some of the earlier editions that tieflings were, they could be much more human-like in their appearance. So I was kind of hoping that maybe they'd give the option to be someone who's just very minor demonic blood, that you're not this, you know, abomination that everyone can tell from a hundred feet away that you are a tiefling. So I was kind of hoping that there would be, maybe that would be like a sub race um, and they would get only, you know, maybe they wouldn't get the fire resistance or some of the more, you know, obvious demonic uh, bonuses. One thing I do like, I like the uh, the entire virtue names, but I like, you know, the idea of making a character. So one of the virtue names was random <laughs> and apparently tieflings, they try to, to live like that concept or ideal. So making a tiefling who just tries to be as random as possible at all times definitely be interesting <laughs> yes i can imagine vegas lancaster would latch yes. onto that pretty quickly <laughs> uh joe how do you feel about the tiefling uh in general i like them i like a lot of the story ways they went i like the whole um either either taking a name of the virtue you aspire to or taking a name of the sort of virtue that you've been stuck with because um, some of them weren't the greatest virtues listed in there i don't think but i'm a little upset at the tail uh, it looks kind of like a dinosaur tail, and that's never what I imagined tiefling tails to look like. Um, and maybe this is just me. Maybe it's a, but it, it feels like a, a very obvious, huge difference. That uh, in in previous editions, I've always seen the tail as being kind of an optional. Some of them have it, some of them don't. Uh, and then there was a feat in fourth aid you could get that actually let you draw an extra weapon with your tail or something or do a free action with your tail or something like that i like it as an option i don't like it as a mandate and so that kind of that kind of bugs me a little they spent so much time saying well there's three different types of horn curvatures that you can have and this is the way the haircut like it, it, you know giving you all these options with the horns and then oh yeah and they've all got this tail well it, it felt a little a little forced and i'm sure that's i mean that's easily house ruled that's easily uh worked out but i i just felt as a as a presenting this race that that will give it a very specific feel and a very specific look that I think a lot of new players uh, will be not not immediate to uh, to depart from and I like having players you know take options instead of uh, feel like they're constrained like oh my character has to have a tail I don't want a tail character so I won't play this race it's interesting because I definitely especially in fourth edition thought oh yeah all tieflings have this tail because it seems like in the art they were depicted as having it and they had mentioned it in the description and I thought of it like a dinosaur non-prehensile tail oh interesting yeah. Okay. In fact, this tail in the art actually looks a little too lifelike to me. I always pictured it as like more like a big dragging, uh, almost like the old sitcom dinosaurs from the 90s. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. 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 That was sort of how I pictured it, uh, which I guess is kind of gross and weird. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I have never heard that perspective. I'm glad to have it. Rudy Basso, your thoughts on the tiefling? I guess if you're going to have Dragonborn, you should have Tiefling because of their harsh, hateful background. But uh, as I read this, these guys are just like drow, right? I mean, think about it. They're, yeah. they, they tend to be evil. No one trusts them. They look weird and people are afraid of them. The Tiefling is just a drow. Um, and that's kind of disappointing. I mean, they have this kind of demonic background, but I don't really see a lot of differences between them and the drow. As as you mentioned that, I think part of it, and and this is this is going off on a huge, maybe I'm just out of nowhere, but um, it might be 
either Wizards of the Coast or Hasbro trying to steer away from a potentially racist direction uh, in that they don't want a race that's considered evil because they have dark skin. And so if we make the tieflings into the race that's considered evil, it's, oh, because they look like demons. And that's, that takes it away from the possibility of, of equating it with real-world racism. That is interesting, but I feel like the drow are still going to probably be classically drow. Well, yeah, probably, you know? probably. Yeah. Um, so, but it is, it is interesting. I do think, I think part of it is, uh, you know, the, the rise of people wanting to play anti-heroes too, you know, that they wanted to give a, a second option there of that race that's trying to not give in to its nature too. That's, I never mm. thought of that drow comparison, but that is, that is a great one, Rudy. That's on point. And I'm curious why their charisma score increases by two if they don't trust anyone and uh, don't like people, generally. (laughs) That doesn't strike me as making much sense. Yeah, I think that definitely read to me as like a disconnect between the lore and the actual ability bonus. Mm -hmm. That's also interesting. Well, I think traditionally devils and demons and fiends have a high charisma bonus. And I, I think it has more to do, I guess... You know, with the abstract concept of charisma, perhaps it has more to do with, like, force of personality rather than, I, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't make sense yeah. if they're distrusting. Yeah. Yeah. Or their, their, their ability to tempt you. What do you guys, what do you guys think about the whole uh, getting other racial abilities at later levels? Like the fact that their Infernal Legacy gives them spells at higher levels. How do you think that'll balance out with the other, what we've seen of the other uh, races? I'm assuming it will about. I mean, we've seen the other races from the basic um, right, right. Levels. So I'm hoping that there's something neat about you know dwarves in the same way. I think it's a really cool concept that you're you know I, I feel like once someone chooses a racing game, they don't really see any real benefits in previous editions beyond those first cool traits. But it'd right. be nice if you get like more stuff as you level uh, and you become more in touch with your racial background or whatever. Right. right. To your point, Rudy, we have seen the basic set and there's nothing like this really in the basic set. Maybe when the player's handbook comes out though, we'll, we'll see more abilities like this, but yeah, that's a good point too, Joe, something I had not caught on to, but yeah, it's scaling racial abilities. I I would like to say that I, I wish they would put in a pronunciation guide at some point because I've heard far too many people say tiefling and it just bothers me on some level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think the same thing. I said dro for probably a good six years of my life before someone oh. corrected me and said trow. You know, it, so. it wasn't until I went to an R.A. Salvatore uh, book signing that I learned that the name of Drizzt's uh, panther buddy was Guinevere and not Gwenhuivar. <laughs> same here. <laughs> same here. And I also, uh, it wasn't until I listened to the Tome Show that I learned that Asmodeus is actually Asmodeus. So, uh, yeah, pronunciation guide would be super helpful. All right, guys, let's talk about uh, the... I did want to say one more thing, oh, is that they don't, they don't touch on their, like, hatred of the Dragonborn, so I wonder if they're going to they get rid of that. I know that was a big thing in 4th uh, edition, but not necessarily Forgotten Realm-specific, so yeah. maybe well, that it says- wars... It says anymore. they have no they have no homeland, so I think the idea of Bail Taroth just they got rid of it. And yeah. so they you know they came from demons from somewhere and now they're here. 
<laughs> I think that's smart. I don't think the idea of one race having an innate hatred of another race is good for the party. If someone's like, I think this race is really cool. I think this race is really cool. And they always have hated each other. That right. at the start makes things a little But weird. everyone hates the drow. It doesn't. It's different when everyone. Then you're the exception to the rule. You're not the rule. <laughs> uh, like Drizzt. So the other preview we saw from Wizards this week via Twitter was the preview of the Hermit background. It is a person who lives alone in seclusion and then for some reason decides to join an adventuring party and start adventuring. Uh, You know, they've got medicine and religion and they have an herbalism kit and they get an extra language and they get some cool equipment and that sort of thing. So it's it's neat to see, obviously, one of the backgrounds in the addition to the five that are in the starter set. Pretty cool stuff we got going on here. Joe, what are your thoughts on the Hermit? I really like how wide open it is, uh, that it's not just applied to one specific uh, character archetype, that you could go, uh, even looking at the, the sort of the life of seclusion, the why, are you, why did you end up in a life of seclusion, it's everything from, from your traditional, you know, I was looking for spiritual enlightenment, I sat on a mountain for five years alone, to I was exiled for a crime I didn't commit. Or I was placed in charge of this ancient rune or relic and had to guard it. And that's why, you know, I was the guy guarding the Holy Grail. And then somebody came by and got the Holy Grail. So now I'm an adventurer, you know. And I really, I really liked uh, the variety that they offered with that, uh, which carried forward into their, uh, their discovery feature, which I think is a great place for DMs and players to work together for something really cool about the character, um, almost like the... Uh, one unique thing in 13th Age's character creation where you've got something really cool about your character that is only true about your character on the planet. Uh, and so that discovery felt very similar to that, like the, your character knows something or figured something out, and a lot of other people aren't going to know that thing yet. So let's work on how awesome that thing is. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I do, I, I think you're right about the archetype thing for sure. Uh, you know, a lot of these backgrounds, they don't just uh, give in to one archetype. And that's great to see. Rudy Basso, your thoughts? Uh, I like that this background is what's really going to define your character even more than the class that you choose. And in past editions, you are, you know, you're a fighter. That's your profession, a fighter. Um, you can make up the background from there. But this one, you are a hermit, I feel like, first and foremost. <laughs> you were a dude that went off and lived on his own, or or a female, dudette. Um, <laughs> and that really is more important than what specific class you choose. Only, I guess, additional thing is, you know, why didn't they share page two? Where are the flaws at? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually really would have liked to have seen the flaws. Because the one I think of is, you're awkward around people, but... What else could there be besides that? Maybe it's going to be a minus two to charisma, and they didn't want to share that to everyone. I mean, it won't be that bad. It'll be like plus four, and it'll make no sense. But uh, Uh, yeah, Hermit looks really good. As Rudy said, you know, it definitely is a a background that seems to take over, and like you know, compared to a soldier, something you could just probably forget. You could easily just forget that you know your character was a soldier, but a hermit's always going to be up front and center. So that's that's cool, and it's. uh, it's nice to see kind of a choice between the backgrounds and maybe how much more you want to include it into your character. You go with something like a hermit. All right, guys, let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor, noblenight.com. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. 
Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday. Noble Knight is a brick and mortar game store. Support small businesses that also exists online. Open 24 7 on the web. They have DD and other cool RPGs. Any edition, any game. Even out of print products. And at a discounted price. That's out of control. Have a bunch of old game products collecting dust? Dangerous allergen. Noble Knight will buy the old stuff you aren't using anymore. Looking at you, Indiana Jones RPG. So go to noblenight.com and get by it and sell it. Take back your life and tell them the Tone Show sent you. Okay, and we're back, and we are joined by another panelist, Vegas Lancaster. Say hello to everyone out there. Hey, guys. Sorry, I was trapped in a bag of holding. Aha, uh-huh, it's cool. It's cool. Good thing you didn't pull out your portable hole while you were uh. in there. <laughs> D&D humor. Um, good D&D jokes. Good. Turned it inside out and walked through the walls. Ooh, there you go. All right, let's talk about our final topic here. It's an article from the Examiner entitled "How Can Necromancer Games Release Fifth Edition D&D Material Without a License?" Uh, this goes on to discuss a few Kickstarter projects which are going to support third-party Fifth Edition D&D material, and we have some posts on various blogs about. Uh, the nature of why these people think they are able to do it before the OGL is released. And they say that they know an OGL is coming out, so they're sort of hedging their bets, and at the same time, they may be changing the names on some things. The example he gives is changing a spell, which perhaps would be called Witch Bolt in 5th edition D&D, to Witch Fire Bolt, um, you know, to get around some of the legalities. Uh, these Kickstarter projects are already successful. They've already exceeded their goal. Uh, you know, some of them have already more than doubled their goal and still have days to go. We'll link all of this for you in the show notes so you can definitely check it out. But in the meantime, I want to talk about this article and I want to talk about, do you guys think that Necromancer Games is in the right for doing this? Uh, And also, it seems like uh, there are some other Kickstarter projects out there similar to Necromancer Games. So do you guys think these guys are in the right? And do you think it's a good decision for them? And why don't we start with you, Vegas Lancaster? You know, I think it's it's healthy for us to have uh, independent companies making their own additional material uh, for us to play with. That's where Pathfinder came from, and that's a beloved system now. Um, at the same time, I, I kind of feel like uh, Necromancer is really sticking their neck out before uh, Wizards has announced how they're going to handle their gaming license with this edition of D&D. I think Necromancer is trying to get ahead of the curve um, before any other competition does. Uh, And I think it's a risky move, uh, given that they're writing material without knowing exactly what they're going to be allowed to actually do with it. Yeah, yeah, it is a risky move. It does seem that way, but they seem pretty confident in all of these 
blog posts. It's very interesting. I wonder if they've had lawyers take a look and they, they feel confident pushing forward. And it seems like they have had some conversations with some people at Watsi. So perhaps they have been, you know, sort of given an unofficial go ahead. What do you think, Rudy? Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest. I It's such a niche hobby that it might be difficult for wizards to license out, um, to to have licenses with companies. But as uh, someone who works for a company that has licenses with Disney, has licenses with Marvel, I mean, these companies do okay on royalties. And if people are willing to throw 60 grand towards supplements, then I think it's in Wizards' best interest to go approach them and be like, all right, listen, we'll make this official if you pay us some money towards each uh, each copy sold. I think that would be good for the company and in turn good for Dungeons & Dragons on the whole. I don't really... I mean, in the past, the OGL has been great because it's allowed these uh, amateur game designers to create new things. But at some point, I feel like they're going to have to put their foot down and be like, all right, listen... If people want to make stuff, let's make it official because um, there's a lot of money to be had here. And, uh, you know, with Kickstarter, new RPGs come out every day. So they need to to, to really establish themselves. Hey, Joe, what do you think? I'm I'm wary of it. I I think it it's it it feels very much to me like it did b- back when I was in college and the thing called Napster showed up and they were like, "How can you share all those songs for free?" And they were like, "Because the law hasn't caught up with a way to chase us down for doing it." And then the law did. And then, you know, torrents started coming out and you're like, "Well, can you get things for torrents for free?" Yeah, well, cuz they haven't figured out how to track those yet. You know, it it feels like to me it feels very much like they're just trying to jump in and do it because they haven't been told they can't yet or or specifically legally proven that they can't yet and they'll make as much money as they can for as long as they can and and then you know whatever um it it feels very silly to me to make uh distinctions like oh we we changed witch bolt to witch fire bolt and you know magic missile is magical missile or or Orcs are orcs with a CK instead of a C, you know, like it, it just, <laughs> it's, it's the same sort of arguments that like the Tolkien um, estate got into with Dungeons and Dragons way back in the day, trying to say, well, you know, this changing it by one letter doesn't really change what the thing is. And so I, I feel like if is they're going to end up getting paid for it, uh, regardless of what the Necromancer game folks uh, try to do to, dance around it um if it's determined that wizards can't own some of these concepts then uh maybe they'll be okay but it still feels kind of it doesn't feel a hundred percent uh on the level to me yeah and i think that's what is so interesting about it everyone seems to be like i guess this is okay but it doesn't feel exactly a hundred percent ethical i suppose it would feel wrong if i was to sit there and be like well i'm casting witch firebolt now guys like it makes me feel icky i know this isn't right i feel like <laughs> everyone would would agree unless you have no heart i don't know would everyone agree though alex basso has this happened in the past before is is this uh you know i know third edition put out their OGL, I think upon release or very close to the release date. So there was a lot of third party material made, but all of the rules were already laid out. I don't yeah. know about if someone's trying to beat the OGL before. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't really know the history of that well, honestly. I um, mean my real I guess only real issue with it is that 
like, okay, fine. These guys are they're taking a gamble. They want to be the first out. They want to get the money. I just don't like that they're using Kickstarter mm-hmm. to do that. Because now they're using all that money. Like, what what happens if they do run into all these legal problems and then they just, you know, ne- the entire product gets blocked and they never get to release it and then they just took all these people's money? Their uh, reputation will be ruined. <laughs> yeah, their reputation. I mean, it's just like they're they're gambling without their money. I guess it's good, you know, if the audience is there. The, I guess Kickstarter is showing that people do want this this out. Let, let me ask you guys a really quick question, Joe and Rudy. You guys game master your own games in Vegas. I know you have in the past, and Alex, you're you're a pretty big power gamer. So I think this question relates to all of you guys. If someone showed up at a table, say you're playing a game at a game store, and somebody shows up at a table with something that is game breaking because it was put out before all of these rules and everything came out. Would that be hard for you? Would you ban it if it was from one of these books? You know, are these books essentially house rules to you? How do you feel about that? Uh, And let's start with you, Joe. Um, In my home game, I would be happy to work with somebody at an organized play table. Absolutely not. I would would not allow it at all um, because organized play is about getting things done in a certain amount of time and having an efficient way that everybody can have a consistent, uh, fun experience. And I think when you start throwing in things that you haven't, you know, double checked against the adventure, obviously the guys that wrote the adventure haven't double checked these new rules against it. Uh, it'll just be way too much. Uh, I'd say no, dude, we're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> let's sit down and roll you a new character and I'll work with you. And maybe we can incorporate some of the stuff into it, but, I'm not going to let you uh, break the game or be Superman among the rest of your party. That's just not fun for them either. How about you, Alex, from a player perspective, if somebody sat down next to you at a table with this, how would you feel? Uh, I don't like it at all. Um, It's just like, unless you, James, specifically said, hey, we can use this book, Mm -hmm. uh, I would never even like consider looking at it. Because it's just like, it makes me think of like, I don't know, like hacking in a, a video game. You're going outside of the expected rules and you're bringing stuff in that could possibly, I mean, you it could trick people. Who knows what's in there, you know? the other Everyone else has to read that, that book to have any idea what's going on. And you could just be making up rules. You could be making up spells and they wouldn't even know. Vegas, what are your thoughts on all this? Uh, somebody using these materials... Uh, I think Joe uh, initially had it right on the money in an organized play setting. And to be fair, I never find myself in an organized play setting. But if I did, I would not expect any off-brand material at the table. Uh, If I'm playing a game with friends and a friend says, hey, uh, I've got this uh, Necromancer's book and there's a cool class in it I want to play, you know, I'd probably uh, let them take a shot at it. And as long as it didn't turn out to be game breaking, I don't see why that's a problem. James, you're uh, working on your own campaign setting right now, Exploration Age. Uh, what's what's your, your feeling about this whole situation, given that you're developing material for D&D Next right now? Uh, You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with working on things now. My plan is to, as the rules come out, look at math and adjust and hopefully take the time before the OGL comes out to, you know, play test some of these things and get some feedback on a lot of them. Um, It's the first time I've ever done anything like this, so I am by no means an expert, but 
I will probably wait until, in fact, I will certainly wait until the OGL comes out before I try to make any money off of any products because I'm just not sure what the pitfalls are going to be in this thing, you know? So I want to make sure that I'm doing it right and that I'm doing it well. And, you know, I think part of the problem for me is not only is this material... Um, you know, it, it sounds like this material may come out before all of the core rule books come out and they may really miss something huge, you know, or they may mess something up really big that, that the core rules contradict. And I definitely don't want to do anything like that. You know, for instance, I was working on a, uh, a module for firearms, uh, and I found out like, oh, well, Wizards is going to put out a module for firearms in the player's handbook or DMG probably their theirs will be better than mine because they are more experienced uh-huh. and you know um so so i would probably defer to them and use theirs so so if if a listener wanted to check out uh this uh exploration age world that you're putting together where would they go to do that and <laughs> offer feedback uh if they wanted to check it out uh all of the things that uh we've discussed from catapults to firearms to Strange and bizarre worlds with tieflings in them. Um, you can go to worldbuilderblog.me uh, and check out Exploration Age um, and get a preview there. And who knows, maybe I'll put some stuff out for free because I feel like it's okay to put stuff out for free. And where can people find you, Joe Lestowski? Uh, I am on Twitter, at Joe Lestowski. I also uh, occasionally blog for my local gaming store. That's modern Myths. Dot com in Western Massachusetts, uh, and I also write frequently at DungeonsMaster.com, which is a site uh, specifically for DMs often following our adventures in D&D encounters. Nice. And where can people find you, Rudy Basso? Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Rudy Basso, R-U-D-Y-B-A-S-S-O. Thanks. And Vegas Lancaster, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Vegas Lancaster. Uh, in coming August, the weekend of the 9th, I'll be at Otacon in Baltimore with oh, Plus nice. Two Comedy. And the next weekend, I'll be at Inconceivable uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, no way! Here. I'll probably see you there. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Massachusetts listeners, go to that con and you can bother Joe and Vegas. It'd be pretty awesome. And Alex Basso, how can people find you? I'll let you know. Guys, if you have a question or topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the roundtable, reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com, or you can reach out to Vegas, Rudy, or Joe in the ways they have expressed you may reach out to them. Okay? Thanks to everybody for listening, and thanks to Rudy, Alex, Joe, and Vegas. Many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Keep on rolling, and keep on listening to The Roundtable.